So I don't know if I use too many. Basketball analogies are not enough. Um, in high school, I certainly was not athletic enough to play more than one sport, so I had to play basketball year-round, so I kind of only have one sport to really go to for personal illustrations. Um, don't shake your head. I can't go, it's in the notes. I can't go back now, Ethan. Teach you to shake your head at me. You can nod, that's encouraging. Don't do this, that, that doesn't work out well, preacher to audience. Um, so my high school coach, my freshman, sophomore, junior year was this, um, older guy who kind of retired to the small Christian high school that I went to, and um, we sort of thought, him as, thought of him as this challenging older fellow, because he had coached college before he came to my high school, and um, he had a real gravelly voice, you know, um, kind of like this. And I can remember, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember exactly how he inspired us, or tried to inspire us. So he'd be back on the whiteboard Right in the X's and O's. He had, a, he had three offensive or defensive solutions for anything. He'd forgotten more about basketball than maybe everyone in this room combined. Um, and he'd be writing up on the board like, you're going to guard this guy. This is their shooter. This is what we're going to do. This is red is our full, co- full court uh, zone press. Blue was our three-quarter court. White was man. Some of you don't care about that. Some of you are impressed that I can remember it. Most of you are like, what are you talking about? And then I remember so clearly when he got done with the X's and the O's. put the cat back on the pen. And 23, 24, 25 years later, the hair on the back of my neck kind of stands up because that's when he would switch from the X's and O's part of the talk to the inspiring part. And he would say something like, now none of this matters unless you go play. Something like that. Every time. He writes on the board for a while, he puts the cat back on the pen, and that's when he inspired us, and it worked partly because we loved basketball anyway and partly because we wanted to win, but also he was good at that. We're finishing up a series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and there's this section at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount right after the beautiful attitudes. They're not the B attitudes. I've been misspelling it all week. I'll explain that in a few minutes. Right after the beautiful attitudes and, and then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's an inspirational part to help us understand the explanation of the flourishing with God life. The Sermon on the Mount asks and answers the quintessential human question. Can humans flourish? And if so, how? And Jesus begins the speech after describing flourishing humans. Not as cool as Dave. It didn't didn't stay. Sorry. You already knew I wasn't as cool as Dave. After Jesus describes the flourishing human, we'll start that series next week, The Beautiful Attitudes, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And then the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, another inspiring piece of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is so gritty and 
and profoundly mundane in his discussions of lust and greed and our anxiety and prayer and our tendency to look at the honor of others. And then Jesus is so inspiring at the beginning and the end. They're like brackets to this speech describing the flourishing human that it's possible and this is how it's possible. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus is gently asking and then much more firmly answering the question, can we flourish as human beings? And if so, how? Through the Sermon on the Mount. The answer is, I'll borrow a little bit from the Gospel of John where Jesus explains it this way, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Well, when we're born again, then what? How do we flourish? Through trusting him. Through full allegiance to him. I think the alternative, I think the house on the sand is ourself, is trusting ourself. And the house on the rock is trusting him. Before I get into that, do you notice, are you disrupted like I am by how Jesus speaks about the flourishing life? I am 40 years old. I've been a pastor for 17 years. I've been a Christian for far longer than that. I know Hebrew and Greek. I've been studying this text with commentaries in the original language and reading it, and I've been misspelling the Beatitudes for months. I have a degree in English, by the way, which should give me the context for beautiful attitude. B-E-A-T-I. All for the last three or four months, I've been spelling it B-E-A-T-T. Why? Because I have a default setting in my head that's wrong. And that is, be this way, and God will approve of you. Did you catch that And you're the light of the world? You're the salt? Not be the light of the world. Not be salt. The rest of the New Testament, when the apostles write to the churches and they call them saints, he doesn't say be saints, though they will describe what a saint looks like. We get this wrong with the fruits of the Spirit too, right, in Galatians 5. Anybody catch that? It's not fruits of the Spirit. Why do we think it's fruits? Because we think we're supposed to be this and God will be happy with us and that's not the gospel of Jesus. It's fruit. Because God is happy with us because of Jesus' atoning for our sin through his sinless life and a trusting relationship with him, we're freed into the flourishing life. I was a little late getting down to this service, not after 10.30, but for me, a little late. And the reason is, a woman was asking me after church, she says, what, essentially she was saying, what's the difference between doing the right thing because it's the right thing and doing the right thing out of love? And I said, everything is different about it. She's like, don't you want to do the right thing 
because it's the right thing? And I said, no. I want to do the right thing because Jesus died for me and purchased a flourishing life for me and I can enjoy the joy of that and enjoy the peace of that through following him. And the difference seems subtle. From 200 yards away, it will look the same why you honor your father and mother, why you're generous with what you have, etc., etc. But in our hearts, there is a monumental difference. Did you see the passive language of let your light so shine? It's not a pushy command. It's the gospel that we are loved because God is God and you are you. Our sin must be atoned for and it was finally, completely, 100% by Jesus. So then when we follow, it's a response of love. The scripture is so clear that we are the light. We still hear be. That deeply satisfied are the poor in spirit and we still hear be poor in spirit. The things the Holy Spirit is growing us in in Galatians 5, we think be patient. Has that ever worked for you, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, just deciding. I'm gonna be more patient. (laughs) we are salt and light and we're called to love to life the description in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 of the follower of Jesus of the disciple is one who loves to life all those they come in contact with we're called to love our neighbors. When Jesus talks about salt and light, he's talking about loving well our neighbors. When he describes the golden rule, which is far less intuitive than we always talk about it being, he's talking about us loving the actual neighbors we have in our life. And let's be clear, this is a metaphor and it's not a metaphor. Do your neighbors know you? I know it's New England and in this part of the state they might live hundreds of yards away, not like 25 yards away like in some parts of the country. But do they know you? And do they know that you're for them? And some of you are like, I have tried. They won't receive it. They don't believe me when I ask them how they're doing. They've never allowed me to come and help them with something. I have an interesting trick for you. This was taught by one of the kindest, most gentle gentle humans I've ever met. He said, for the neighbor that's harder to love, ask them to help you with something. As humans are made in the image of God, there is a, a, what theologians would call common grace. They do want to be good neighbors in some respects, maybe not often. But the neighbor that's hard to get to know or hard to love, ask them for your help. I had one neighbor several houses ago, the first home that Rachel and I bought together, who was difficult in that way to love. And the only time we ever had a decent conversation was when I asked if I could borrow his sawzall. But what salt and light and men and women who build their house on the rock do is they love to life. And this includes our institutions, the company that you work for or run, the school district that you find yourself in, this institution. We are loving one another to life. I was so uh, impressed. A couple of months ago, um, 
a good friend of mine was a little frustrated with something that was happening in politics. And I know you're like, how could that be? I thought we were all totally satisfied. And specifically, this friend was not super happy with the educational, the the amount of politics that overlaps with education. And you know what they did? They started volunteering in their local school. Because maybe we need to do national platform things. But what followers of Jesus do is we love the neighbors we find ourselves in relationship with. And it includes our closest neighbors also. Jesus talked incredibly profoundly 2,000 years ago. The carpenter, who was also the incarnate son of God, spoke in a way about our lust and about our anger that still works and it's convicting. We love to life even our closest neighbors. And here's what that looks like when we're convicted by our sin, when it grieves us, we apologize and we ask for forgiveness and we repent. You know what repentance is? It means we turn and go the other way. It took me years to successfully repent to my 12-year-old. I used to grab her arm, sometimes because violence was being perpetrated from one sister to the other, so I'm justified in separating them, but I would grab too hard. And it would really scare her and upset her, and it took years of telling her I was sorry. There were tears. I would ask for forgiveness, and then I would ask the Lord, would you please help me with my anger? And it's been three years or four since I've done that. And I'm so thankful. That's what we do. We're led by Jesus because of his sacrifice for us and because of his clear love for us to love the neighbors we find ourselves in and our closest neighbors. And we are freed from those things. I have said it before, but you need to hear it again. There is freedom from the violence in your head and heart. It is found in trusting Jesus, in repentance and accountability, in prayer. There is freedom to the lust in your life. And it is found in trusting Jesus that he loves us and is for us learning to repent, learning accountability and communication with trusted friends in prayer. There is freedom. It's not just the neighbors we find ourselves in. It's not just our closest neighbors. It's also our enemies that we are called to love to life. This is Jesus teaching us about turning the other cheek. This is Jesus telling us to go the other extra mile. This is all in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus telling us to give not only our outer garment, but our inner one. So we know he's exaggerating. Because in that context, they only had two garments. So if they did what Jesus said, literally, they would be naked, which was not Jesus' goal. But it was to teach them that even the people in their life that are not for them are ours to love to life. That is difficult. It requires wisdom. But he lived the life we couldn't live, Jesus. He died for us to reconcile us to himself and to send us out in the world as lovers of who? Everyone we come into contact with. And you're like, that sounds exhausting. (laughs) It's also about us, but in that order. It's a response of love to him. It's for the good of our neighbor. And then it's for us. 
If you're looking at this, if you're flipping through this, I can't hear anyone turning pages, but if you're flipping through the Sermon on the Mount and you're looking at the subject headings, I'm skipping a big section that is about us and our inner anxieties. The Holy Spirit, even now, if you're a follower of Jesus, is loving you to life and healing you from your over-anxieties. I'm not, by over-anxiety, I'm, I'm trying to remind you that anxiety is not sin, though it can lead to sin. But don't misunderstand me. Jesus absolutely meets us right where we are and heals us. That healing is not separate from other means of grace, meaning medication or counseling. Those are not evil. But in addition to that, we need to know there is healing for our deep inner hearts that become over-anxious about the things of life. And there is healing for that. Specifically, we learn to look at birds and flowers. Gosh, that sounds like a Hallmark card. And yet, you listen to the words of Jesus, it still works. Look at the flowers and the birds and remember that God loves them and has clothed them, how much more does he love you? We are salt and light called to love to life. And so that's my attempt at explaining salt and light. Now we move to building upon the rock. How do you do that? What does it mean to build your house on the rock? What does it mean to not build your house on the sand? I think in the simplest terms, it's remembering that there is a rock and that when we think we know better, when we think we know all of what it means to flourish as a human being, that's building a house on sand. When we instead remember that Jesus not only knows the flourishing life available to us, but that he has purchased it for us, then we turn to him with our skin, with our money, with our imagination, with our mind, with the things we've been asked to steward, and we trust him with those things. I'm attempting to cover all of the middle parts of the Sermon on the Mount and then connect them to building our house on the rock. And here's the question. Do you believe that God desires your flourishing? Because that is the fundamental temptation is to believe that he doesn't know what's best for you and he doesn't long for what's best for you. Do you believe that God longs for your flourishing? That's the lie that Adam and Eve believed that God didn't long for their flourishing. It's the lie we believe when we choose destructive behavior, sin. And it doesn't begin with making the right choice because it's the right choice. For some of you, that's a great motivation. And I think that can guard us from pain, but it won't last. The deep motivation is, do I believe God is for me or not? And if he is for us, then we turn to him and say, how do I enjoy this flourishing life that you have purchased for me? This is what I was talking with my friend about after the first service. What's the difference between 
obeying because it's the right thing and following as a response of love. From 200 yards away, it probably looks the same to honor your father and mother because you believe it's the right thing to do and to honor your father and mother because Jesus died for you and he loves you and calls you his own and has purchased a flourishing life for you. It honors God. It's the best thing for the neighbor and the best thing for you. Believe that because of what he did for us and because that's how he taught it. From 200 yards away, it looks the same as I honor my parents because God said to honor them. It won't last in our heart as resentment builds up, as we come to believe a really horrible lie, which is that that behavior pleases him with respect to merit. It merits something before him. It pleases him because it's a flourishing way to do life. What about you? When you look at the Ten Commandments, which ones of them are intuitive? I like the Ten Commandments because the Sermon on the Mount is so heart level, it would overwhelm us to look at the, the commands of Jesus that he expanded and made them so real to our hearts. But for this illustration, just think of the Ten Commandments for just a second. Do we have an image of them? Yes, look at that. Okay. I thought that we did, but I forgot to check. We have a really good tech team who abides with someone who's not super organized. Thank you. Um, Which of these are intuitive for you? Have no other gods before me. Don't have idols. Worship God sincerely. Take a day off. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't lust, don't steal, don't murder. Some of those are intuitive, right? But some of them are not. And when we see the ones that are not intuitive for us, when we see the ones that we're not even positive we agree with, such as take 24 hours off every week for worship, for prayer, for play, for feasting, for ceasing. How many of you do that? And you know why you don't do it is it's not intuitive. And certainly in the United States in 2018, it is not a value that we should stop working one day out of seven. We love vacation. We love diversion. We do not know or understand or intuitively get that we are supposed to Sabbath. We're supposed to feast and rest and play and pray and cease one day out of seven. So my, my point is they're not intuitive to us. May, hopefully do not kill is intuitive and you agree with it. Though I imagine like how you feel now would differ from how you feel in traffic about that specific commandment. I mean, it's okay to be honest. But the point is, we think naturally that we know best, at least in some of these areas. And Jesus is saying that we don't. There is a rock. When we think we know best, that's building our house on the sand. And the winds will come. I look around this room, I know some of your stories, and the winds have come. The places where you've built on the sand have fallen. We are salt and light, called to love neighbors and even ourselves to life. So we build upon the rock by following him. What Christians do I think most actively is we remember what has been done for us. That is the most often the response to the gospel. We remember 
what he has done for us. We remember that he has not only described the flourishing life, but purchased it for us. And then we actively remember that through trusting him, through handing over to him our anxieties, which are legitimate, but there's healing and peace amidst them. Learn to hand over him our very body, saying, you know what's best for me to do with this. We hand over to him the stuff we have been asked to steward. By the way, what he wants is not for you to give away everything. He wants you to enjoy what he's given you and be generous with it. It's not some ascetic religion. And I think the most profound way that we learn to do that is pray. I'm thinking of all the categories of the Sermon on the Mount about our bodies, about our imagination, about our tendencies toward greed, about our own internal anxiety. We hand these things to the Lord knowing, believing, remembering, trusting that he has purchased a flourishing life for us. And the most profound thing I think that we can do is learn to pray about those things about the commands that are intuitive to us and the commands that are not intuitive to us, about the ways that it is easy for us to follow and the ways that it is difficult to follow, knowing that he's good, that he hears our prayers, that he answers them, that he is even now growing us up in love of him and love of neighbor. We confess to him and ask for help with our future, with our neighbors, with our anxiety, with our skin, with our circumstances I hand these to you Lord lead me into a life of life for your glory for the good of neighbor and for my own heart help me build this house your life and heart and imagination and mind on the rock not on the sand as we'll sing in a few moments. The prayer is, Lord, help me believe and trust you because you are indeed the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we believe Help our unbelief. Jesus, we trust you when you say that we are salt and light. Help us to trust you. Holy Spirit, we believe that you love us, like us, and are fond of us, and have pursued us and reconciled us to you. Help us to believe that more deeply, to sense it. And then help us follow and trust you into the flourishing with God life you have purchased for us. Amen.